packed house today. It's exciting to have everybody here, people that, um, if you're new uh, or just visiting or just in the area, and if there's a few of you in that category, um, we just welcome you, welcome you to New Life Christian Center. Uh, we don't think it's by accident that you're here. Uh, we believe it's by God's providence that you're here. Uh, before I get going too far, um, Dave missed an announcement, but it really wasn't his to give. Uh, Maybe I should just do it this way. We received this from Jonathan and Michaela. It says, Farm Help is on the way December 2021. Isn't that awesome? Okay. So Jonathan and Michaela, with child, expanding the herd as it is. We're super excited. If you look, if, like, I don't know if there was a... Too many empty chairs before all the kids got up to go to uh, to children's church, but it's kind of like that first, second, third generation after the flood around here. I mean, there's there's babies everywhere, and now there's more. Amen. Amen right? Isn't it awesome? Uh, we're excited uh, excited about that for sure. And uh, I was going to say, and I keep telling people this, that my standard announcement is is that Tammy is going to be a grandma. But I didn't think that was quite fitting. Not for this crowd. They need to see the hardware. So, um, well, last week we started a series in the book of First Corinthians. We're going to go through First and Second Corinthians, and we may veer off of that a little bit as time goes on. But uh, we think it's really valuable to study the Word as it's written, uh, as the authors, whatever book that we're in, as those authors string together the things that God inspired them to say, uh, we believe it's valuable to study those in that sense that, uh, that we can draw and not just grab bits and pieces from here. Although I will say, though, uh, if, you really look at the, if you really look at throughout the pages of the Bible, it's written topically. They're writing topically about issues. And, and this uh, First and Second Corinthians, First Corinthians that we're in, is really no different. The Apostle Paul is addressing topics in the church in Corinth and in that first century, topics that have been reported back to him as issues in the church. And uh, it's, it's, it can be stressful to talk about issues in the church. It really can be. And we can kind of well up, well, is it me? You know, the first topic that we started talking about, we'll talk about for a couple of weeks, is this idea of division. So we all kind of like to have this, <gasps> was it me? Am I being divisive? Am I not being divisive? A little quick 30,000-foot flyover, as we mentioned, the city of Corinth there in ancient Greece, sat on a little isthmus of ground there, uh, and was really a central hub of the Greco-Roman world. It really was. There, was. there was a lot of freight that passed through there because they could take that shortcut, and even though it meant that they would dra- unload the ships, you imagine this in the first century, like this is, we're talking about manual labor, right? They would unload the ships carry the freight four miles across the isthmus to the other side, and then they would drag the ships that was carrying the freight, they would drag them across, then reload the freight. Like, I don't even, I don't even really like hauling hay that way. Like, if I had a way to get it from the field just straight into the barn or straight to the dairy up at Carlson's, I would much prefer that. This is the idea of loading and, lo- and unloading it's expensive, it's time-consuming, but that's how they did life back then. 
But it was also made it a real powerful and influential city, both in commerce and also in culture. Uh, and they had a pantheistic pagan worship. That was their, that was their, 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 their cultural norm, was this pantheistic, a pagan, we would use the word pagan worship, worship many gods. One of those, the most popular one there in Corinth, it was the home of the Temple of Aphrodite, if that sounds uh, interesting. Uh, it's where we get the word aphrodisiac, if, if that sounds familiar. Kids, if you don't know what that is, just ask your parents. Let them answer that question, right? That's the way, I, like, we're going to get eventually to a point where I'm going to talk about circumcision because it's in the Bible. And my answer is always, talk to your dad. Just talk to your dad, he'll tell you what it is. This temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and I have that in quotes, that's what she was believed to be. Part of their temple worship, part of the big issues that were in Corinth was uh, the issues that stemmed out of, out of generations of believing and, and believing that you're worshiping God this way is they worship God through sex. So this temple had some thousand, they figure there's a thousand temple prostitutes that, and that was part of their worshiping to who they thought was God. And here comes the Apostle Paul and says, Meh, that's not really it. But that leaves a lot of baggage in people's lives. That leaves a lot of change in people's lives. It's in that setting, though, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel and started a church, a church mixed with both Jewish and Gentile converts. And years later, after hearing, as I mentioned, a not-so-flattering report about these issues within the church, Paul writes this letter to address these five issues. And I think it's good that we have these uh, kind of out in front of us from time to time as we go through this series. He talks about divisions, and he kind of takes four, ch four chapters in the book to, to bounce in and out of this idea of what divides the church. The next few chapters, he talks about the issues of sex. He talks about issues regarding food, specifically food that had been sacrificed to idols. And was it good to eat? Was it not good to eat? Where's people's conscience in the matter? Some people didn't want to do that. Some people thought it was okay. And so he talks about some of those issues. They were dividing the church. He talks about how the church there was gathering. Uh, there was a ton of selfishness in the church. And that was affecting their get-together. It was affecting their meals. People were being selfish. People were cutting in line. People were, were not thinking of others. And so he talks about the gathering. He talks about uh, the very end of the book, the last, well, chapter 15. He talks about the resurrection. And then chapter 16 is kind of his final remarks. Last week we looked at this idea of what dividing the church over leadership preference um, I will pause in my notes and just to say this, that let's be real. We all have a, a certain preference. I'm not ignoring the fact that we have a certain... I have certain preference. I have people that I listen to on a frequent basis. I'm kind of a sermon junkie, so, so I have very specific people that I like to hear throughout the week. I have a job uh, Monday through Saturday and Sunday afternoon <laughs> during the summer that allows me time to be an attractor, to listen and and, uh, you know, listen to podcasts. And so we all have preferences. The idea is not that we have zero preferences. The idea that Paul really was conveying there in that first portion over leadership preferences is that we don't put our preferences 
out there as a division point. That we, don't, uh, that we don't divide in that sort of way. Like all of these guys that Paul was talking about, including himself, as, as people were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Christ, I'm of Cephas or Peter. You know, those were division points that were rising up in the church. And he says, hey, we, we can't have any of that. We're all ministers of God. So, so it's fine to listen to whoever you want to. That's kind of my paraphrase. But don't put one above the other and condemn somebody else for thinking differently. We're all ministers of God. This week we're going to look at uh, a loftier idea, a loftier point of division, kind of that Harvard, I'm smarter than you problem that churches fall into. We live in a culture whose worldview worships knowledge. We live in a world that worships knowledge. Can't get enough. And, and I want to say from the onset, knowledge is not bad. Knowledge is not the issue. It's how we handle it. It's how we think about it. It's how we promote it or, or, or put down where other people are in a sense. But it can be divisive. We fawn at those ideas of the great intellectual abilities, those that have that. Uh, the more letters and degrees that a person has, the more we're prone to put them on some sort of a pedestal, right? Let's just call it what it is. In our country, in our world, that's the way it is. People that are smart get elevated over those that aren't. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to elevate anybody here or put anybody down. I'll just call it where it is. I figured myself a C-plus man, right? I got through school. And uh, that was that. But the reality is, is that we have a source of wisdom. We have a source of wisdom as Christians. Just absolutely insane. We'll get there. I don't want to get ahead of my notes. But we live to, as a culture, we live to find out who the winner of the debate is going to be. We live to know who's going to end up on top. They're the experts, the educated, the scholars, the global speakers. I'm not speaking down about education. I think education is awesome. I think knowledge is awesome. But we have a tendency to elevate people because of the letters behind their name rather than really looking at the wisdom of their words and their position. As a Christian church, we have to get back to that. We have to get back to discerning what is actually said and then know how to rightly filter that, know how to rightly discern what is being said and is it truly wisdom or not. I'll give you a definition of wisdom in just a minute. But we have a tendency as a culture to think that they must be right. Right? It, it, it must be true, right? Aren't they the smartest ones? Like, we rely on their intellect. And so it becomes really hard to parse out and to kind of dig out, like, what is truth and then what is not truth? What is real and what is not real? Or, as what we've been going through the last year and a half, you know, what's, what's true and what's false? What's, what's something to be concerned about and to be prudent about? And what is just straight up fear? Because very hard, if we don't have a good filter, to really understand how do we, how do we process? How do we think about it? How do we respond? And what do we believe about these things? Well, it's similar issues, and that's why we're in 1 Corinthians. 
as I mentioned earlier, in 1 Corinthians 1 through chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of division over leadership. Now he continues to wade right into the heart of the problem within that church on who has the corner on the market when it comes to smarts. Open your Bibles, grab your iPad, your iPhone, your smartphone of whatever make or model. Open your Bible app. Jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31 is our text for today. Where Paul's picking up a kind of continued thought from the first 17 verses. He says this in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's a big statement. See, it kind of connects back to the verse right before it. For the message of the cross, that portion of it connects back to verse 17, where Paul's declared the idea that the cross would be made of no effect if it were not presented with the if it was presented with the wisdom of words. So, if, so if <clears throat> if we're sharing the gospel with people and trying to just convince them according to our own intellect, according to our own ability, I tried this. I tried this as a new believer with my dad because he was really big into like you know geology. He was really big into. Uh, evolution. I thought, oh, well, in the early 90s, there was just a flood of CDs coming out. Uh, kids, if you don't know what CDs are, there's little plastic discs that you put in the machine. You know what I'm talking about. Not a download. You actually put them in the machine. So there was a flood of material out there when it come to evolution versus creation. I thought, well, I'll just overwhelm him with biblical truth, I'll, I'll just overwhelm him with information from these super smart people talking about creation. I'll just, I'll just keep putting stuff in front of him and surely he's going to believe. Never worked. Never worked. He watched it. He enjoyed it. But it didn't change his heart. The message of the cross... The message of Christ's crucifixion, his death for us on the cross, was presented with the wisdom of words and man's best attempt. It's of no effect. He says in verse 18, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. To those who are uh, rejecting it, those who are perishing, to those who reject the salvation of the cross, the idea of being saved through a work of a crucified man is foolish. It's absolutely foolish. I'm going to go a step further than just the word foolish, not to overwrite the Bible, but put it in the context of that day. The cross was the most embarrassing way to die in the Roman world. It was embarrassing. So why would we believe that, that, the, that the person that, that these Christians are talking about, I'm kind of speaking in the third person, why would we believe in what they're saying? Because they're talking about a guy that died the most embarrassing death there was in that world. That's human wisdom. That's the people that are perishing. And they see that that wisdom is foolish in their unbelief. That's what Paul's getting at. It was very embarrassing. It was shameful. Absolutely the most shameful way for a person to, be de to die is to be hung up on a stick. 
the words there, message of the cross, today kind of sound, in a way, we look back at it 2,000 years later with a sense of maybe religious nobility. Like somebody's being romantically rescued, like in a movie. So somebody's sacrificing themselves. Well, that's exactly what it was. But we look at it that way, but in that first century, it was an embarrassment. Saying the message of the cross was the same thing about what we would say, somebody being put to death in the electric chair, perhaps. I don't even think that's a fair comparison. But what message does a cruel, humiliating, unrelenting instrument of death have? To those of us that are being saved, the Bible says, and God says through the inspiration that he gave to the Apostle Paul, it's the power of God. Though it's a strange message and regarding, regarded as foolishness by some, to those who trust and are being saved, this message of the cross becomes to them the actual power of God. There's an inherent power in the preaching of the true gospel when it's received with faith. The hearing and trusting of the true gospel will bring power into your life. It'll bring power into your life. It'll open up a door of reality that's completely different than anything you've ever experienced. And it'll come with power. Power. So kind of the first point is the message of the cross is the power of God. Now the the Greek word there is dunamis. Dunamis. If you look it up in the Strong's, and I have a few notes here about that. It's, It's a literal or figurative force. Not some, you know... Star Wars-y type of thing. Rather, I like the end uh, of the definition of the Strong's. It's power, strength. It's this. It's violent. That type of force. The power of God does violent things in your life. Now, I'm not saying, uh, uh, I'm not saying uh, uh, negatively violent. I'm saying in a good way. There's occasions, you guys can see the news, you can read the stories, maybe you've been a part of a, of a major rescue a, a operation, or you've been, you know, seen it happen, you see it. When people are being rescued, oftentimes, violence happens. Oftentimes. If you've watched uh, Free Burma Rangers, we watched Free Burma Rangers last year. It's a great little, it's not cheap, it's kind of expensive on Amazon Prime. But it's all about Sammy and Blake Donnelly, a young couple that grew up in this community, went to church here, uh, but grew up in the, in the Colville and Addy, Kettle Falls area. They've joined the mission, uh, the missions organization, Free Burma Rangers. And what that organization does is it goes in and rescues people. Uh, they started in Burma, world's longest running active civil war. Uh, they've, they've reached out now into countries of Syria, Afghanistan. Right in the midst of the heat and the battle, their goal is to rescue the innocent, rescue those that are, that are being oppressed, bring the gospel into where the places where the bombs are going off and the, and the bullets are flying. That's their goal. And that's a violent occurrence. It happens. But God's power that way is kind of that way. It's kind of the same Greek word as where we get our word, dynamite. Dynamite. Uh, I wish I was born 100 years ago. Because <laughs> 100 years ago, you could buy dynamite at the hardware store. You go down to Seti's down here and say, Hey, Frank. Or Frank's dad. 
I need a case of dynamite. I got some work to do. I got some land to clear. And there's this, uh, Nathan Carlson's uh, grandpa, Larry uh, Miller was his name. We all called him Grandpa Larry because he's kind of a grandpa to all of us. But he tells a story about when he was young, growing up down in the valley area, and how much of the, the, the valley floor down there around, you know, south of Chihuahua in the valley area was just always flooded. It was always flooded. And the Colville River there is really shallow, and so when the Colville River rises in the spring, it floods all this ground, you know. Donna and Ed have some ground in that situation. I have a secret for you. This story will apply to you. You can tell it to Ed. Grandpa Larry came up with, he had this job to try to put drainage ditches down there in the valley area and dig this long drainage ditch so they could drain this ground so it would be usable farm ground. So he came up with this idea. Hey, Frank, I need some dynamite. And he walked this straight line. They daisy-chained all of these sticks of dynamite together, and they would do this long 100-yard you know, strip, light that thing, and run like crazy. And next thing you know, what do you got? You got a drainage ditch, right? Boom, up it goes. The dirt goes everywhere. It's nice spread out, nice and even, right? And you got this long trench in the ground. Dynamite's powerful. The Apostle Paul's saying that's the type of power that God has for those that believe. Question on the table, what swampy ground in your life needs drained? And are you draining it by human wisdom or are you bringing it under the message of the cross? See, the message of the cross is strong, powerful, mighty. It makes forceful changes as we surrender to it. It makes forceful, God's power, His ways, His character makes forceful changes in our lives as we surrender to it. You want to just stiff arm God's ways? Well, your arms are going to get tired. Are you going to surrender to God's ways in your life? Are you going to surrender to the message of the gospel? We're going to keep trying to do, make changes by what the quote-unquote experts say. Peter talks about God's power as divine and all-encompassing. Second Peter, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, 3-4 says this, As His divine power, speaking of God, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, who called us by glory and virtue, by which you've been given, <clears throat> by given to us exceedingly great and precious, precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. God's divine power has given you. God is giving you a promise in that verse 3. He says His power covers everything in life. Everything in life. Everything in life is contained within the pages of the Bible on your lap or the one in my hand. It's contained in the words that God has for us through His Scriptures. Everything, all things. That word all, all simply means is all. All means all, that's all, all means. Paul continues with this quote there in 1 Corinthians from Isaiah 29, 14. Paul says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Paul shows that in spiritual matters, God opposes the wisdom of man and he will destroy the wisdom of the wise, not bow down before it. 
God will never bow down before the wisdom of human people. Never. I don't like using the words never and always, and I probably wrote more of those words in my notes for this message than I ever have. God will never bow down before human wisdom. Never. It says it right there to Isaiah. Now, definition of wisdom. What does wisdom mean? The definition that I'm going with on wisdom is this. The righteous application of true knowledge. That's what wisdom is. It's, a lot of people would just convince, can condense that to uh, the uh, uh, applying uh, knowledge in our life, you know, in a, in a general term. But I think the biblical definition is, is a lot better. I think this is more of a biblical de- definition. It's the righteous application of true knowledge. See, you can have true knowledge and apply it wrong. We see that going on all around us. You can have uh, an understanding of true knowledge and misapply it for different reasons. Apply it to certain ends. Apply it for a certain outcome that's, that you're trying to support. But the, the righteous application, in a sense, is a surrender. That word righteous, rightness. It's the right application of true knowledge. That's what wisdom is. Paul's going to talk a lot about wisdom. Let's go. Verse 20. Where is the wise, he says? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish? He says here in 1 Corinthians. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? You kind of start to see the interesting wordplay that the apostle has here. For since, verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, And it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Go back up to the top or up there where it talks about the world through wisdom did not know God. The world through wisdom did not know God. There's a constant tendency to think that the smartest and the wisest humans will know the most about God. That's our natural deduction, that's our, our, our natural thought, our natural answer, that the smartest people must know the most about everything, including knowing the most about God. But God cannot be found through human wisdom. You can't reason somebody in the sense of, of uh, convincing them in that sense to follow the Lord, because when we follow the Lord, we follow the Lord in faith. And the essence of faith is, is that there's things that are unseen, unknown, yet we still trust. Yet we still trust. So God can't be found through human wisdom, only through the message of the cross. The pursuit of human wisdom may bring a form of earthly contentment, a form of earthly happiness, a form of, 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 uh, of 
uh, earthly and, and worldly wisdom and, in a sense and notoriety and all that goes with that, but in and of itself, it can never bring the true knowledge of the true God. Isn't it funny how God's salva- salvation plan is usually 180 degrees off from human wisdom? That's usually, if you, if you read cover to cover in the Bible, that's usually like the, um, the subtitle of most stories in the Bible, is that what the people thought was the right thing to do was not what God was saying. What God had to say seemed completely ridiculous. March around Jericho? Really? Like, what's that going to do? We need heavy equipment, right? We need an excavator. We need bulldozers. It's fortified heavy. So we got to come heavy against Jericho. No, what they came heavy with was worship. God's plan. Guess what? It worked. God's plan is usually 180 out of human wisdom and where, where the worldview says, uh, here's wisdom, let's go there. God's really saying, nah, I don't think so. Let me show you, and I'm going to show you. Apostle Paul says, I'm going to show you that. He's saying that God's saying, I'm going to show you that by how crazy it is that I'm going to save you. It's a crazy plan. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like it's really wise. It's funny how it works. The message of the cross, the message of the cross saves. For centuries, the Jewish people were looking for the powerful messianic signs, messianic prophecy markers that could be checked off. Is that him? Is that him? They were looking for, for 1,500 years, they're looking for, more than 1,500, they're looking for that one person that could really save them. And the problem was, they were looking for salvation in all the areas that Jesus really wasn't delivering. Because Jesus was delivering in the most important areas. But they're looking for those signs. They're looking for those signs. They were not looking. They completely missed it although it's in the Old Testament, they were not looking for the message of the cross because they were not looking to be freed from sin. Our greatest enemies are sin and death. Jesus come to set us free from those things. Everything else, everything else is survivable. Right? They were surviving under Rome. They were getting along. In fact, their leaders had formed this, you know, ungodly alliance with the Roman leadership to kind of keep the peace and keep things squelched down. They were surviving. They were getting by. They wanted freed from that. They wanted freed from that oppression. It's not what Jesus came for. See, the key is their desire for deliverance was not bad, but the rejection of God's way of deliverance was. That's the issue with the Jews that Paul's talking about, of which he himself was, by the way. So he's not talking about other people. He's talking about this was our mindset. This was our best wisdom. As a Jewish person prior to his conversion. The key to their deliverance, the key is their deliverance, Their desire for deliverance was not bad, but the rejection of God's way of deliverance was. Their idolatry was this. Their idolatry was that they now had God completely figured out. He would simply 
but God would simply repeat the Exodus story in way bigger splendor. So he was going to set his people free, but it wasn't about running out of Egypt. That's all a picture of what Jesus does for everybody who would follow him and trust in him. So it's a much bigger splendor. It's a bigger deal, way bigger deal. The Greek culture, they valued the pursuit of wisdom, usually expressed in high academic philosophical terms, lofty ideals, sit around and pontificate about all that was going on in the flat earth, and don't get too close to the edge. You might fall over. Let's remember that was the wisdom of the day for centuries, you know, that if you got too close to the edge, you were going to cascade off. The Greeks, they did not value the wisdom expressed in the message of the cross either. They didn't value it. They thought it was foolishness. They thought it was low beneath them. The key is here is their desire for wisdom was not bad, but the rejection of God's wisdom was. And their idolatry was to conceive of a God that would be ultimate reason meaning, of course, that what we deem to be reasonable. I don't know, I'll repeat that. Their idolatry was to conceive of God as ultimate reason, meaning, of course, what we deem to be reasonable. They had the same issue that our culture has. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Don't judge me. I won't judge you. Right? Situational ethics is what we used to call it. Now we're afraid of even using those terms. Situational ethics, it's okay for you to steal from your boss. It's okay to cheat your employer. Don't get caught. And it's not okay. Like there's a standard. God has a standard. Don't steal. Don't take from people. I just use that as a simple example. But situational ethics were just as alive in the first century as they are today. Paul saying, hey, we we can't go there. See, the second division point, first one is over leadership preference. The second one is over competing intellect. Who's the smartest? Who can debate the best? Who can reason it out? to the best end. And Paul summarizes his rebuke really by going back to the gospel, as I mentioned last week. Each one of these things, Paul keeps circling back to the gospel for, for the answer. Not trying to somehow like be, come up with his own idea so that he would just have a smarter idea than them in and of himself. No, he just circles back in each situation. He just circles back to the gospel and says, this is, this is where it's at. This is God's plan. This is his wisdom. He says here in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren. By the way, I mentioned that last week. If you're a Christ follower, you have a calling. You have a calling. Every single believer has a calling. Every single believer is called to some sort of ministry, some sort of engagement in the body of Christ. You're gifted with spiritual gifts, the Bible says. You're called. I'm called to use those frequently sure we all have times of of needing to to regroup and heal up and you know and, and all of that but it's not a life of sitting in the gray chair saying that's christianity i show up once a week do my thing go home if you want to do that you can go to any church 
You can go to very specific churches. You can just do your thing. No, Paul says, hey, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, back to this idea of wisdom, Paul says that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Ooh, that starts to pinch toes for most Americans, right? Not many wise, not, he didn't say none. So it's not that there's not any people that, that are noted as being wise and intellectual. He just said not many. Not many mighty. Wait a minute, what about all the tough guys? Eh, problem is, is the wise people try to lean on their wisdom, the strong people try to lean on their strength, and he says not many noble. The noble people really try to lean back into their nobility rather than on who Christ is. That's why he says not many, not that there's not any, he says not many. Not many are called, but God has chosen the this is really kind of a backhanded compliment, we would say. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. <laughs> Do we get that? Do we get the humor of what Paul's saying? He said, God's chosen the foolish. You're foolish. Can I just, are you going to run me out the back door, Daniel? You're foolish. God says he's chosen the foolish people. So he's talking about you and me. I'll say that about myself. That's why I said earlier, at best, I was a C-plus dude. I hung out in the auto shop. I hated math. I was, the more classes I could take out in the other building in high school, the better off life was for me. I thought I could pass, right? So God's saying, hey, hey, hey. And Paul's saying, uh, God's chosen the foolish things. We're all kind of foolish. Think about his conversion. He became instantly foolish in the culture. He went from being the, the, the enforcer that I talked about last week for the Jewish religious system in Israel. He was the tough guy. He was the one that was going around knocking heads. He was the one that was standing there, and we see in the first book, first chapter of Acts, consenting to Stephen's death, not the first chapter, but the early parts of Acts. He was the one that was, was their strong man, and he was brought to blindness. He instantly went from being great to the potential of being a beggar on the street. So he's not just talking about them. He's talking about himself too when he says that God's chosen the foolish things. Puts himself in that category, I'm sure. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to be blind, to be lame, to have issues, to fall to temptations, to be sinful, all these sort of things. You were in the out crowd in the Jewish society. You were weak. God's chosen the weak things of the world, Paul says here, to put to shame those that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised, God has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh, you should highlight this in your Bible, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What solves the division problems of wisdom is when we come back to this statement and we apply it laterally with the relationships in our lives. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Verse 30 says, But of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The message of the cross is all about the glory of the Lord. Point number three. Perhaps the Corinthian Christians were getting a big head, thinking that they were uh, something special because of their nobility, because of their you know, place in society, whatever the case was, when in reality most of them were just common everyday folks that God's called to salvation. And Paul reminds them, and via these words that have lasted this long, and every bit as applicable for us as it was for them, Paul reminds them and us that the answer to the worldview debate, the answer to the worldview debate is the wisdom debate. And it's not found in our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, or the wisdom of this world and this culture. It's not who you listen to on the radio or the TV, who you think has got the best take on things, but it's simply found in Christ. Verse 30 says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who's became these things. The big four, he's become wisdom. He's become righteousness. He's become sanctification. And he's become our redemption, the wisdom, the righteous application of true knowledge. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is, has the perfect, you read through the Gospels, you are going to see a picture of a guy that righteously applied true knowledge time and time and time again and never got it wrong. I told you I'd use a lot of these nevers, always type of words. He never got it wrong. He never got it wrong. He's a picture of the righteous application of true knowledge. He is wisdom. He is righteousness, the state of being right before God. These things are what he gives to his people as we're placed in Christ, in his family, in the ecclesia, the household of God. He gives us sanctification, being set apart for a specific purpose. He gives us redemption, the deliverance from the power, the pull, and the presence of sin. That's what redemption is. It's deliverance from the, the, the power of sin, the pull, the temptation, the presence of sin. We don't, you don't have to live there anymore. And that not have to is not dependent upon your ability. It's dependent upon your surrender to Christ. So if you're struggling with something, submit it to the Lord. Let Him deal with it. Don't, don't open the door. Let Christ shut the door. Leave it shut. He's dealt with it. If you've repented, if you've confessed, whatever it is is sin, sought God's forgiveness or the forgiveness of the people that it's damaged or hurt or affected, and received that, and restored those relationships, I'm giving you the, the quick synopsis of how this goes down. Then it's dealt with. Leave the door shut. Let God give you, let, live in the power that God puts in you to just simply say no. Let it boil down to the royal law. Love God and love those around you. It's simple. I'm not saying it's easy. There's a difference. All right. The reality is, is that God's always up to something. I love that about that line uh, in the Experiencing God study that we did this last winter. God's always up to something, always doing something. Uh, and it's usually, as I mentioned earlier, always the opposite of the prevailing worldview. Like whatever God's, you know, the, kind of the forgotten parts of our world, 
You know, they're not getting the highlights right now. They're not on the news per se. Uh, you know, the backwaters of China, the, you know, places in India, the places in the Middle East, other than where the bullets are flying, the bombs are going off. The places that aren't really talked about, they don't get the press. Guess what's happening? People are coming to Christ in droves, in mass. We don't see that. Unless you are mining it out of the news, you don't, you don't hear about it. So God's always up to something, and it's usually not in a place we would expect, just like Jesus being from Nazareth, not in a way that we would expect. The message of the cross, Jesus dying and, and, and providing salvation for us through his own death. So not in that way. It's usually the opposite of the prevailing worldview. A couple of quick examples. I'm going to speed through because we have communion coming up. A couple of quick examples of what I'm talking about we can find in various places in the Word. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. James 1, 5 is a great promise for God's people, says this, if you lack wisdom, a little bit of application point here, say, hey, I, I, I need some of this wisdom there, Mark. What are you, what are you talking about? Like, where do, I, where do I get it? Right here, James 1.5 is the verse for you today. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Awesome promise, right? <clears throat> Wouldn't it be nice to have a little infusion of God's wisdom into our world today? Uh, let's qualify that by saying, how about a little application of God's wisdom into our own lives that then affects our world today is the way that God intends it to play out. We all need that. I'm not barking at you guys. I'm talking about myself. I need more of God's wisdom day to day, moment by moment. Uh, We're in a tough situation. I'll be honest with you. We're in a tough situation in our area. Like, if you live from Blue Creek South, you got a nice little shower the other day. We got squat. Right? From Addy North. We didn't get nothing. You know? I mean, it's a tough scenario. God, what do you want us to do here? What do you want us to do here? We need His wisdom. So I'm talking to myself about my occupation, about the world around me, about, you know, I'm talking to the Lord about I need His wisdom to, to know, you know, how to uh, rightly divide His word, speak truth into the lives of people around me. All of that. We all need that. And James simply says, hey, you're short, step up to the plate and ask, because God wants to. He loves to give it out. He also says, James says in chapter 2, verse 5, listen, my <clears throat> beloved brethren, he says, God has not chosen the poor of this world, uh, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised for those who love him. An awesome, two awesome promises. Uh, if you feel like, uh, this is why I, I really um, chafe I really chafe when Christ followers play the victim card. Has not God chosen the poor things of this world to be rich in faith? Really drives me nuts when I see Christians out there playing the victim card because God has chosen them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him.
little quip back to the wise and the foolish. A little application here on the power side of these two verses. If we're living if we're living on our own strength and in our own power, we're going to burn out at some point. But if we're living by the power of Christ, as Paul's been talking about here in 1 Corinthians, day by day, uh, we, have, we have all we need. We have all we need. We have the wisdom we need. If we feel like we're short, God wants to abundantly infuse you with His wisdom. I can't think of a better source. There is no better source. There will never be a better source. We have all we need on the power side. Same with the wisdom. The wisdom side, God's wisdom always, always, always seems foolish from the world's view. The funny thing is, is he likes it that way. That's what Paul's saying. It pleased God to have this plan that seemed foolish to the world. It pleased God. He, 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 he was tickled. Can I use that word in church? The girls are laughing. Nobody else is laughing. Just the girls. The girls always laugh. It pleased God in that sense. He likes it that way. And God gives wisdom to His people with a generous heart. And our rejection or our reception of God's wisdom uh, is going to be evident in our lives. And it's going to be evident in the generations that follow us. So parents, husbands, fathers, mothers, uh, catch wind of that. Your rejection or your reception of God's wisdom is going to play out in your life over time. or it's going to, And it's going to play out in the next generation and that's on the good and the uh, that's for the good and for the bad I believe and the last verse I want to end with and the worship team can come on up I just want to read this real quick Matthew says Jesus says this in the book of Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 through 30 he says that at that time Jesus answered and said and that answer is in response to all these allegations ah he likes to hang out with the drunks he's a drunk himself he likes to hang out with the tax collectors you know he's he's culturally in the Jewish uh, 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 mindset these criticisms about Jesus were essentially this he's a fool he's foolish that's what they were kind of saying there in Matthew chapter 11 but at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father. So he turns to the Lord in prayer and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Think that God enjoys. Think that God enjoys. Think that God's tickled. Jesus says to himself, I thank you that you did this. You've hidden this wisdom in a sense from all those that lean on cultural wisdom and on worldly wisdom, and they've revealed them to mere babes. Even so, Father, he says in verse 26, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except for the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Well, things were hidden from the smart people in Jesus' day. The revelation of who he was. They missed all the signs. They could literally open the scrolls, 
the prophetic Old Testament scrolls, that's all they had, they could literally open those scrolls, lay them out on the floor, go through them one by one, and if they compared them to Jesus, they would always, always, always come up with, well, that must be the one. He's fulfilled that one. Next go around, yep, he's fulfilled that one. Yep, he's fulfilled that one. And he could go through the list of hundreds and hundreds of them in the Old Testament, and they all point to him, and they would come to no other conclusion. They could come to no other conclusion if they were even in their right mind that Jesus is the one. They chose in their own worldview, their own wisdom, not to do that. They chose not to believe in the revelation of who he was. Jesus was happy that God chose the unlikely. Seen by the world as babes, there's kind of a, another backhanded compliment, as immature, unknowing. That's who God chose to, <clears throat> to give his message of the kingdom to. And he invites us into that, and he invites us into that in this way, where we'll close, where Jesus says this next. He says, so come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a rest. Are you tired of the intellectual debate as it wore you out? Are you, trying to figure, are you tired of trying to figure out who's the smartest person, who to follow, who not to follow, who's got the wisdom? Jesus is saying, forget about that, put it away, and come to me. That's what he's saying. Put it away and come to me. It has to be done in faith, though. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, Jesus says, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden. Isn't that an interesting description of God's wisdom? That his burden is, that his wisdom is, is, is not hard to carry? It's not heavy in that sense? His power's not hard to carry? It's not heavy, it's not weighted. You don't have to debate your way through it. You don't have to try to figure out which way to go, who to follow, who to listen to. No. He narrows that down to a factor of one, himself. That's what Jesus does. Learn from me. Learn from me. Come to me, learn from me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus calls us to rest in him. We don't have to struggle, strive over the contemporary issues. We have to live within the, the culture in that way. We have to live within the, 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 the world that we're ambassadors in as the word says, for sure. But we don't have to struggle and strive over it. We don't have to panic over who's the smartest. It's way easier to say it's not me, uh, but I'm following the one that is. That's the easy road. That's the light load, as the word says. As believers, we serve the source of wisdom. In him we can relax. We can find rest for our souls. We can find peace. We can find peace. You know what peace is? I shared this last week. Peace is the rarest of commodities. It's what everybody wants. So hard to get to. We can have peace. We can enjoy peace in our relationship with Christ. Let's go ahead and celebrate communion in that light. David, if you'll come on, come on up. And uh, the worship team's here. We'll just spend some time before the Lord. Know that the front's always open. If you have things that you want to unload, something that you want somebody to pray with you, Man, just uh, find somebody close to you, find somebody you know, 
pull somebody aside. It's, it's actually my favorite part of Sunday. It's, it's not this part, you know, it's not the, I love the worship. Don't get the wrong idea. I love preaching the word. Don't get the wrong idea. But I love it when you guys are ministering to one another over real life issues and real life needs. And I'd always encourage us to do that. Find somebody around you. Find one of these guys that are walking around here. Find somebody that you know that you trust. If you need somebody to pray with you, talk with you about the things of the word. And uh, just encourage you to do that always. Let's go.